This is Thinking Freely with the ACLU of Maryland, the show that talks about what's happening politically in Maryland from the courts to the streets. I'm your host, Amber Taylor. Access to justice and opportunity is too often based upon skin color, something Black and Latinx people know far too well. People of color have been fighting against racist systems and government policies that discriminate against us since the beginning of the country. But what happens when people of color work within a government institution that has a long history of systemic racism? A government institution that often discriminates against the communities that they come from and themselves. One of these institutions is the Prince George's County Police Department. The department serves a community whose residents are 80% Black and Latinx. And it's no secret that the police and Black residents have a long-standing damaged relationship brought on in part by decades of racial profiling, police abuse, and unconstitutional police practices. One group that has been caught in the middle are officers of color in the Prince George's County Police Department. Back in December 2018, 13 officers of color with the Prince George's County Police Department, along with the Hispanic National Law Enforcement Association and the United Black Police Officers Association, filed a lawsuit in federal courts that challenged the department's pattern and practice of unconstitutional conduct. To put it frankly, the longstanding failure of leadership within the Prentice County Police Department has worsened under the current police chief. He has allowed the dominance of white officers, fostered racist conduct, and retaliation against officers and communities of color, and undermined the effectiveness of the department. Today, we are joined by Lieutenant Sonia Solikoffer and retired Captain Joe Perez, president of the Hispanic National Law Enforcement Association, to discuss why they decided to file this lawsuit. And we'll talk to them about their message to other officers of color and women officers fighting against discrimination in their police departments. So, Sonia, Joe, thank you so much for being on Thinking Freely. I really appreciate you coming on. We appreciate you inviting us. Thank you for having us. So I wanted to start this conversation off um, just getting like a, a baseline as to, you know, what really attracted you you all to being and becoming police officers? Well, I'll start. I was a meeting planner for maybe 15 years and I traveled a lot I'm negotiating contracts and I've been a lot of places, but I just got tired of being in the air. And going to these places alone, and I have a lot of friends that are in law enforcement. So I decided one day in my office, mm, let me apply. Mm-hmm. So I applied for different departments, and my goal was I wanted to be an investigator. And why did you want to become an investigator? Well, because I wanted to get into um, trying to figure out cases and um getting to the meat of different types of situations and figuring them out and being able to um, help individuals in the community. So, Joe, what about you? Well, my story is a little different. I grew up in a bad neighborhood in New York City, and, um, you know, we used to have police officers jumping out. You know, we were hanging out at either on a corner or in a park, and we would have officers jump out and put us up against the wall and search us and do all these things. And uh, there was one particular officer that used to walk the neighborhood, and we used to call him Officer Friendly. And uh, he knew us by name. He used to come and talk to us. He used to play basketball with us. You know, he 
he had a different approach. And um, he was the reason why I wanted to be a law enforcement officer. I wanted to be like him and not like the others. Well, you were a police officer and while you, you know, you both being on the force, can you tell me about uh, a time that, you know, you felt was a meaningful time where you were really like, yes, I'm like giving back to my community. I'm like, you know, doing this is like I'm doing what I uh, signed up for. Well, when I came out of the academy, um, I was able to go back and work in the same neighborhood where I grew up and see some of the same individuals that I grew up with Mm -hmm. and showing them that, you know, we've all come from the same neighborhood and, but look at me and if I can make a difference by just showing them that um, I improve myself, even though we grew up in Langley Park, um, 15th Avenue down to DC, um, the community was proud of me and I was proud to give back and help. And I knew I was doing a great job when I would see some of those individuals I grew up with, and they were very appreciative. I would have to say the most meaningful time for me was um, responding to a call where uh, this young lady with uh, several children, uh, she was a crime victim. And uh, I went over there, helped her, took the report, and, um, you know, dealing with this family and seeing uh, what they didn't have in terms of, you know, it looked like they didn't have very much money, yet she was a victim of a crime. And uh, that gave that that gave me and some other officers the idea to uh, go and put together a yearly food basket drive. And we started by going through our files and looking at people who were recent crime victims, particularly women and uh, with children. And we went and we started giving out food baskets. And when we first did that, that first year, it, be, it, it started with, you know, like a dozen food baskets, a dozen victims. And um, 20 years later, uh, we're doing about a thousand food baskets every year. And I, I would have to say that that was, you know, that really struck a chord with me. Yeah, because it, it really, it resonates to me because that sounds more like not policing is like, you know, as out to get bad people, but more of like you're being a public servant and you're here to really serve the serve the community. Yes. And that's what it's all about. Can you can you talk to me about, you know, could you both, you know, um, have connections to PG? Can you talk to me about like what the what the culture is like, both in the county, but then also on the forest as well? I'd say that when I first started, you know, again, you know, going into police work was something because of officer friendly, you know, something that I really wanted to do. Um, You know, at first everything was nice and shiny and, you know, you, you have this idea that you can go out and help people all the time. And, um, you know, one of the things that I noticed in police work is the culture. Mm-hmm. And um, when you go into the police academy, they train you as though people in the community are our enemies, like it's us against them, you know. And um, once I was on the police department, you know, I I started thinking, you know, um, 
you know, I need to do something to have an impact in order to change that type of culture. You know, you're not going to change everyone or every situation, but, you know, little things that you can do maybe will bleed over into the next guy, you know. I, I spent some of my time, I grew up in parts of D.C. and P- Prince George's County, um, but I noticed that there were not a lot of minority women in positions on the police department, meaning um, officials, mm-hmm. higher officials. And I remember um, you can sign up to be um, a patrol officer on the bike, and, um, and they would tell the women, it's too hard for us to accomplish that. Um, it's, it's, it's very um, traumatic as far as physical, um, having to ride that bike through the neighborhood and carrying that bike, and they didn't have many women. So at 36, I said, okay, I'm going to try it. You know, I wanted to be one of the women, not only a woman, but a minority woman that can be on the bike patrol unit. And I did. Um, I was able to succeed. There were a lot of bruises, however. I was able to get through it. And just knowing that, you know, Minority women were in a predominantly male organization, and um, it motivated me to prove to other women, black, brown women, that um, we can do the job the same way as men could. And, And as I was out in the community, I've had other women walk up to me and like, wow, you're a police officer, or they would compliment me on my uniform and and then say, you know, I want to be a police officer too. And that really helped me um, give back. And actually, you know, as you were speaking about, like, how there's not that many minority women um, on, particularly in leadership positions in, in the uh, Prince George's County Police Department, mm-hmm. What do would you what what would you both say about like the overall you know recruiting tactics and retention tactics for black brown you know Latinx people? What would you say to that? I'd say they need to um, you know do more work in order to recruit minorities. You know, for example, it it you know from what I saw, um, many times they would go recruiting to all these different states like Pennsylvania and. You know, um, they go out to Delaware and, you know, other places out in the in in the sticks, you know, and um, for some reason or another, they could never seem to find enough minorities and especially not in this area. And yet, you know, when you ask, hey, did you go to Howard University? Did you go to Bowie State University? A lot of times the answer was no. You know, PG Community College, you really didn't see them recruiting there. You know, they were looking all other places. So, Joe, you know, we were talking about the retention and recruitment um, um, efforts. And that's to me, it's like really messed up that like, you know, they are not even looking at these beautiful places in the district. I mean, in, you know, within within their county when it comes to recruiting, um, you know, people of color. 
But, you know, what would you actually say, um, you know, to their overall efforts about like around the the culture for people of color within the police department? Um, how how was it for you when you were there? After a while, you would notice that um, as a minority, you were treated a little differently. Um, you know, and, and I mean differently even as you moved up the ranks. And what I mean by that is, you know, once uh, you moved up the ranks, it seemed like your authority, although you may be, let's say, a sergeant or a lieutenant, you your rank didn't mean as much as your counterpart who was white. So if you're a sergeant on the street and you're telling your troops how to do certain things or if you're giving advice up the chain of command on how things should be handled, it just seemed like, you know, your your word as a minority didn't did is didn't um, hold as much weight as some of our white counterparts. You know, there were situations that you would see where um as a, as a minority supervisor, you'd reprimand somebody and then the chain of command wouldn't support you. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, your white counterpart, same situation, same person, you know, they were treated very seriously, you know, and back that, that white officer. I do remember times that, and, and I'll call the person a habitual offender, mm-hmm. all right? You'd have an officer who's a habitual offender Always doing the same type of things wrong, all right? Like what? Um, Maybe, let's say they didn't know how to talk to people when they pulled them over on a traffic stop, you know? And you, as a minority supervisor, you would talk to the person and tell them, hey, you know, you shouldn't talk to people that way. Then you would pass it on to your boss to say, hey, you know, he has a problem communicating with people. You know, they'd kind of blow you off, you know? Uh, unless it was a, another minority, you know, in charge, then that's when you would see it had more weight. But, you know, that same officer, same types of situation, a white supervisor will do the same exact thing that I did, you know, talk to the officer first, then tell his supervisor. Next thing you know, it's it's serious. You know, we got to do something about this guy. And then you would see retraining come in or something like that or a transfer you know what i'm saying like immediately whatever it was that that person did was taken more seriously almost like you know your rank your time on the department didn't mean as much as someone of equal rank you know during your time on the police force you know what what was it like for for you because you know, you're, you're a lieutenant um uh when it comes to how you were treated on the police force and what you saw from other people of color on the police force as well. Well, let me start from the beginning. When I first came on in 2001, I was 36 years old. I went through the academy and we were assigned a field training officer. Now, my field training officer was a white officer. And after a couple weeks on the road with him, mm-hmm. he began to talk sexual innuendos, ask me if I ever been with a white man. Um, Have I ever seen um, a white penis? All white men don't have small penises. And I became very irritated, and 
I was worried. I, you know, it, it began to then escalate to um, you're doing such a great job. And then it, be- it became touching. And then he exposed himself, not once, but twice. And literally, I didn't know what to do because I was a rookie and I didn't know who to go and talk to. Because your field training officer, that's the person you're supposed to like go to when you have questions, correct? That's the person that's supposed to train me to become a good police officer, to be able to work within the community, show me the things that I needed to learn as a newcomer, a rookie, and how to be safe. But I wasn't safe. And I decided I didn't want to go back, but I couldn't just quit. So um, I just remembered in the academy there was a um, a captain, female, black female, and I remember she came in to give an orientation while I was in the academy. And I looked at her and I said, you know, one day I'm going to be just like her. I want that white shirt. I want to be that in that uniform to represent as a woman and not only as a woman, but as a minority woman. And I just remembered to um, call her to tell her what was going on because I couldn't trust anyone that was on my squad because the entire squad was predominantly white. And I was the only black female on that particular squad. And when I called her and then explained it to her what was going on, um, I told her I didn't want to come back to work. And she said, you need to go in and I'll have you out a roll call in two minutes. And so I went in and and finally I was told I had to go to the academy to do paperwork. And when I got down there, I just let it all out. I told her what I was going through. I couldn't sleep. I didn't know who to talk to. And she asked me, she says, do you trust me? And I said, I have no one else to trust. And by that time, I can hear a knock on her office door. And it was the um, interim chief, um, someone from internal affairs, someone from um, an investigator. And I just told him everything that I was dealing with. I mean, I left a good paying job because I wanted to serve the community. And I just didn't know how to handle it. And once I did that, there was an investigation. Um, I even filed charges because this was sexual harassment. And um, throughout the investigation, human relations, they sided with me. However, that officer is still here on the department. And I've learned throughout the 19 years that I've been on that I was a victim, but I suppressed that in order to move forward in my career because if I knew that the county did not take care of me then, they weren't going to take care of me at all, and I had to take care of myself and and prove myself that, you know, I can do this job. However, it was still something I had to deal with because um, deal with it socially as far as other male officers not wanting to work with me because I made this complaint and um, having to prove that um, 
as a woman, as a black woman, that um, I can still do this job, but I just suppressed it for so long. And my way of giving back was to make sure, like, for example, if I'd gone on a call that dealt with sexual harassment or um, and to that extent or whatever, I knew exactly what that person was feeling and I knew how to, I knew how to help that woman or that man mm-hmm. to deal with the situation. And Sonia kind of speaks to what I'm saying where, as minorities, when we deal with situations on the police department, they're not taken as serious. I mean, in Sonia's situation, one, the guy's still here. Mm -hmm. You know, they go through the motions acting like, you know, yeah, I'm going to take this serious. But at the end of the day, he's still working, you know, and he's still committing violations. And not only that. At the time I gave my statement, and it's public record, um, I wasn't the only one that made the complaint, but I was the only one that came forward because the other female was afraid to come forward because she recognized what I was going through. I was being ostracized. Um, no one was backing me up on calls when they found out I was the one that made the report. And that's dangerous, too. Exactly. And she even admitted to me, she apologized to me, the other female, because she said, I'm sorry, I knew what you were dealing with, but I couldn't come forward because I, I saw how they were treating you. And you have another black female and giving two statements because, you know, they had to interview because, you know, he was her FTO at one point, too. At the same, you know, my 30 days then switched over. And then nothing happened. Um, and, and more recently, um, Sonia was transferred to the same district where this sexual assault took place. And she met with the current chief and asked him, you know, hey, you know, please don't send me back to that district anywhere but that district. And and the chief just, you know, pretty much crossed his arms and said, I couldn't do anything for you, you know. So, you know, again, those are examples of how as minorities, as minority leaders within the police department, we're not given the same level of respect or, you know, the issues that we raised are not given, you know, the appropriate seriousness. And officers are transferred every day. You can be transferred because no matter what position you play, you're always a patrol officer. I didn't have a problem with that. But transferred because of out of retaliation, I did have a problem with. And then to be transferred back to the same area where officers did not want to work with me after I made the complaint. And now I'm going back into that same area to be victimized again. And then you have individuals, well, this happened a long time ago. It does not matter. Sexual harassment, just because I don't show it on my face every day when I was working out here, doesn't mean I was not dealing with it, especially when you know that the department, the the association did not take care of me. And when he said, you know, I spoke with the chief, I did. You know, don't do this to me. Literally um, begging him. Do not put me back into that environment. 
not only am I going back into that environment, I'm going back as an official, a commander of a district, and you have some of the same officers now I supervise. I came on as a rookie, but now I'm going back as I am now your supervisor. And Joe, you know, was there any time that you felt like you were um, discriminated against or retaliated against while you were on the police force? Yes, I mean, <laughs> there, there were there were <laughs> there was there was numerous instances, and uh, you know, many times it was as a result of uh, me reporting something that didn't seem right, you know. And I would say, you know, one example was pretty much, you know, one day I was made aware of where we were. The police department was involved in a chase. They were chasing a motorcycle. They hit the motorcycle with a cruiser intentionally. And it's on videotape. And uh, I was working internal affairs at the time. I was a lieutenant. And um, usually when when they're trying to cover something up, there's a lot of whispers going on and stuff like that. In this particular case, I had no clue that we were investigating it, even though I was the other lieutenant. But eventually, when they swept it under the rug, it came to my attention. And um, once it came to my attention, once I saw the video, then I reported it up the chain of command. Mm -hmm. I took the video, I met with the Inspector General for the police department, we talked about it and, you know, they were acting, you know, like like always acting like they're taking it seriously. And, um, you know, pretty much after that, they started coming after me and, you know, eventually I moved out. What do you mean when you say that? Moved out of my position in internal affairs. And where did they move you to? I was moved to uh, the planning and research division. And um, there's certain places within the police department that, you know, when they want to stick you in a corner somewhere, those are some of the locations, you know, planning is one of them. Because internal affairs is pretty like, you know, it's it's a pretty high class, like, you know, position within the police department, correct? You're in a position where you police the police. And, and like, you know, Joe Perez said, um, I worked as well in the same division and noticed discrepancies within certain cases. And I spoke up. I spoke up because I knew what was going on here was discrimination, retaliation, repeat offenders. You get same individuals who act out and you have five or six complaints on that same officer Five or six complaints. All six can't be telling a lie. Some it has to be some truth to it. However, but when you speak up about it, as I did, mm -hmm. then that's when they say, "Okay, now it's time for you to go." And, and let me just clarify something. Um, you know, like I was in internal affairs for about six years, and under the previous chiefs. Um, because I was under several while I was in internal affairs, when we brought up discrepancies to the chief and told him, hey, you know, for example, you know, this case wasn't investigated properly. This guy happens to be 
white or this guy happens to be minority. Um, every chief prior to this chief did something about it. And there was no retaliation up until this new administration. Um, you know, one of the first things he did was he didn't want to meet with the minority officers. We used to meet with every chief since Chief Farrell. How long ago was that? I, I want to say we were meeting with chiefs for over 20 years. Mm. You know, even before I was on the Prince George's Police Department, I was on a different police department. We used to come and have meetings here in Prince George's County and, you know, uh, discuss issues of concerns related to race. And every chief since then worked with us. This chief met with us a couple times, but what um, ended up causing us to actually file the lawsuit was that we bought this chief uh, instances of unfair treatment, discrimination, racial language, things like that. And um, immediately after reporting these instances to him, retaliation took place. So if Officer Smith came to me and said his supervisor used the N-word and I reported it to the chief, well, the officer that reported hearing the N-word was transferred, you know, never the person who actually committed the offense under this particular administration. And it was consistent. Every time that we met with this particular chief about a particular incident, it was always the person either got transferred, person got terminated, you know, some adverse action was taken against that person. How, how many people would you say like that that impacted? Well, we gave him an opportunity to address, you know, a couple of issues, just a handful of issues, you know, roughly about five or six issues. And each and every one resulted in an adverse action against that person reporting the concern. And this is why you get officers that are afraid to speak up because of the um, retaliation being ostracized and um, they don't they don't want to say anything because we're an example of what the department is doing when you speak up. This is an example right here. I may still be on the department. However, I'm in a place where they don't want me there because I will continue to speak up. And you have officers, they'll tell you, you know, you're doing a great job. However, I can't be a part of it because I know. To me, it's it's just like a gang, mm-hmm. you know, an organized gang. Since, you know, since we're talking about the lawsuit, you know, what, what, what were you hoping, to, what were some things you were hoping to get when you filed this lawsuit? Some of the things that we're looking for is, We're looking for, I mean, top to bottom change. You know, first of all, we're looking for change in leadership. And the reason for the change in leadership is because the leadership sets the tone on what the officers on the ground do, on how they treat people in the community. You know, if they think that they can get away with, you know, uh, using excessive force on people, you know, Um, they'll do it. 
you know, but if the leader sets the tone and says, hey, we, we, we're not having that, you know, that's going to that's going to change. And, and training isn't going to fix everything. But, you know, these officers have to sit through more training and learn how to deal with people. You know, if if you don't know how to talk to someone, then you shouldn't be a police officer. If you can't relate to the community, you shouldn't be a police officer. You know, we're we're actually, you know, pushing for the body cameras as well, you know, because the body and none of this by itself is going to fix every single problem on the police department. But when these officers know that there's a body camera present, you know, that might alter their, you know, what they'll normally do, you know. And if we could prevent people from, you know, getting, you know, getting, you know, um, paralyzed as a result of a traffic stop or, you know, getting killed just because they have, you know, mental health issues, you know, we could prevent things like that. That's always a positive. And so much of excessive use of force, I think, can be decreased as well because you have some of the same repeat offenders that um, uses force, but oh, by the way, well, it's not on camera. It's we didn't catch it. It's not on their in-car camera mm-hmm. um, because the in-car camera doesn't work. So when officers know their in-car camera doesn't work, it's like okay, well, I can do what I want because you know it's not being recorded. However. You do have individuals in the community that will record each and everything, which they should. However, when they get these body cameras, and like you know, Mr. Perez said that they would think twice, maybe. But not having these things in place, you know, I worry about my own grandchildren that lives in Prince George's County. I have taught them ways of um, presenting themselves and how to answer to the police when you're stopped on a traffic stop and what's a search and what's an illegal search. You have to teach your kids. Yeah, No, I mean, and that's, that's a sad thing is that generations of, of people of color have had to had those talks with their kids about, you know, how do you how do you interact with the police? Because, you know, there, there just was understanding that there was there they weren't going to be treated um like a full human being really so can you take me back to like 2018 like what what was like your mindset when you went into filing this lawsuit uh, for both of y'all well for me um i had to speak up once they decided that they were going to come for me um i was always one to speak up while i was on the department in patrol any position I would speak up, and I just couldn't deal with it anymore, and And I'm just very thankful that we have such a good team behind us to support us in this lawsuit. Um, I've had officers tell me, um, you need to pick your battles. They pick me. And, and, and I would say the biggest um, reason for the lawsuit was we had no other choice. You know, we we tried going to the chief, you know, and he pretty much shut us down and started going after people, you know, 
and they left us no other recourse, you know, and um, we kind of felt that we tried to handle it in-house without the public knowing about it, you know. We were trying to improve things from the inside, and all under this administration, all they did was come after each and every single one of us, one by one. And you would think that if you spoke up about things that were not right, that you would be um, praised for what you do. But it was the opposite. So if you're not in the clique, then we don't want you a part of this organization and correcting, you know, their faults or, you know, another officer. Actually, and Joe, you know, did you ever feel like you were retaliated against um, while you were on the force? Uh, yeah. I mean, I was, you know, um, shortly after reporting that um, motorcycle incident. And um, there was another incident where um, the police department um, officials were encouraging internal affairs officers to basically steal time from the county. I reported that, and shortly after that, um, my promotion to captain was held up. You know, um, I should have been promoted when there were open positions, but the chief decided not to promote me. So those are kind of ways that they retaliate against you, you know, um, for speaking out. Um, if you witness something in a certain division that you're in and you say something, next thing you know, you're not a team player, you get transferred out, you know. So those are some of the things that, that I experienced. You know, and um, Sonia, what would you say to, you know, other women, um, particularly women of color who are on the police force? Like, what what would you say to them as, like, they're trying to either navigate their own battles with discrimination or um, just, like, really surviving as they're trying to serve their community? I would say to other women, they need to support each other because there are other women that are in silence um, when it comes to sexual harassment. And believe it or not, it is a common practice within the police department. But some women feel as though they'll just take it as a joke and, no, speak up, talk to someone. Don't be, I know it's hard. It was, it wasn't easy for me, but I knew I had to stand up and um, and I'm hoping that other women, not only within my department, but within other agency, other employment opportunities, organizations that you have to speak up because this will follow you. Mm -hmm. And it can affect you emotionally, physically, mentally, and it's a lot of stress. However, you get through it. You you will get through it. And in some cases, I've noticed in my 19 years on the department that um, some women feel like they had to in order to, you know, move up the chain or, 
you know, be promoted. No, you don't. Use your brain. You don't have to use anything else. But there needs to be a support system for other women where they can go and reach out. How about you, Joe? Um, what what would you say to other you know officers as they're fighting against you know, discrimination and um, really just standing up for things that are happening that are wrong in the in their police department? Well, I would say that um, you know what I would do is you know you, you don't want to be oversensitive. You know, um, I would say that if uh, if you see a situation that doesn't seem right, talk talk to someone you know, and, um, you know, report it within, you know, within your chain of command to your supervisor, you know. But um, at some point, you know, if you have to go outside the department, I I highly encourage people to, to do that. You know, use every avenue that's available. And then if if, uh, you know, the administration is not willing to, uh, you know, take ser- uh, take things like this seriously, you know, then then move on to outside entities and, um, you know, always do the, the right thing no matter what, no matter how, no matter the pressure, you know. Exactly. There's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of um, friends that I've lost on the department. Um, afraid to communicate with me, but I'm okay um, because I know I'm doing the right thing for for other women, other brown, black women. I know I'm doing the right thing, and I hope and I pray that this will encourage other women in all types of positions to say, I don't have to do that, or I can um, report it. And it's important that people say something and do something because that's the only way we're going to have an impact on change. If you stay silent, there is not going to be any change. Joe, can you talk to me a little bit about the organization that you're president of, the Hispanic National Law Enforcement Association? What did they do? Well, we're a nonprofit association along with um, the United Black Police Officers Association. Both associations are very similar in nature. Um, It consists of minority officers. And, you know, we work in two areas. Um, We work one area of uh, helping officers, mentoring them, helping them to move up the, the ranks, you know, just giving them advice on how to handle situations when they come across certain things. And then um, we also work as like a liaison between these officers and police administrations. And then we also work with the community. Um, We try to service the community wherever we see um, where there's lacking services. You know, if there's a particular neighborhood that might need school supplies, then we go into those neighborhoods and we'll do a a school supply drive or a food basket drive or during Christmas time we give out bicycles, you know, in neighborhoods that are underserved. So that's the type of work that we do. And Sonia, you know, how can people either, you know, connect with you, support you? um... Um, They can just read my story. 
you know, they will learn a lot from my story. Um, you can Google my name, Sonia Zollicoffer, and you'll see my story. Um, they can also support by supporting other women that are fighting in silence. That's what I really want. This is my advice to other women, too, to make sure that they pursue the complaint if it happens to them, because that's the only way we can stop it from reoccurring, is if you speak out about it. And we see across the country that, you know, women are coming forward, speaking out about sexual harassment in all phases I'm, I'm the second vice president of the United Black Police Officers Association, and we work in uh, um, together with the Hispanic Law Enforcement Association, some of the same um, practices and what we're trying to do as far as helping um, minorities, especially black and brown women, where they can come forward and um, talk to us, and we're there to give advice and um, give them direction. You know, and I really did appreciate the conversation that we had today. It was moving. It was inspiring. Um, um, unfortunately, to hear your stories, but I was inspired to see to see the people who had something terrible happen to them and are using that as a force of real positive um, good within the department, but also within the county itself. Um, so really, thank you both for being here today. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for your support, too, as well. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Thinking Freely. If you like Thinking Freely, make sure to rate and subscribe to us from wherever you get your podcasts. It really makes a difference. The show was recorded at District Productive in Washington, D.C. and was recorded on Piscataway Native American land. I'm Amber Taylor, the host and producer of Thinking Freely. Till next time.